You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We continue to hear the Word of God this afternoon. In the Old and New Testaments, we turn first to Psalm 116. I love the Lord, for He heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because He turned His ear to me, I will call on Him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, He saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all His goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, truly I am Your servant. I am Your servant, the son of Your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to You and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people, in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Continue our reading in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Him, that is Jesus, Teacher, We want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, It goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be. 
with this wicked generation. And finally, we turn to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, and read from the beginning and end of that chapter. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. We continue reading at the end of this chapter at verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This afternoon, we give our attention to our confession in Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble Himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was He buried? His burial testified that He had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with Him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to Him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added, He descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by His unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, 
which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, death is a mighty power in our lives, our last enemy, as Paul calls it. Some of us have been near death ourselves. Most of us have had to bring a loved one to the grave. And each one of us will die one day. Death is a harsh reality for every human being. The Bible helps us to deal with that harsh reality, though. Not by pretending death away, as we might otherwise want to do, but by placing before us the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, by the power of His own death, burial, and torment, changes our mourning into dancing. He turns our crying into shouts of joy. Christ died to remove from me the sting of death. That's what we confess with this Lord's Day and with the Apostles' Creed. The Lord Jesus has claimed me totally so that death, the grave, and even hell itself no longer terrify me. Christ died to remove from me the sting of death. The Psalms are eloquent expressions of human fear surrounding death. That's why we can identify so closely with Psalms like Psalm 116, which we read and sang. The outpouring of emotion which the psalmist expresses there is familiar to us. You'll sometimes hear this psalm read or sung at funerals, certainly at times when someone has died or when someone is approaching death. Remember those words of Psalm 116, the cords of death entangled me, the anguish of the grave came upon me, I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Although Psalm 116 is more familiar to us, David says something similar at the beginning of Psalm 18. Death is an unnatural, ugly reality in our lives which fills us with fear and terror and coldness. Rightly so. Especially when we understand what death is all about. What makes death so ugly is that it is a punishment for the sin into which we plunged ourselves as human beings. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, as we read, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. And elsewhere in Romans 5, death came to all men because all sinned. See, brothers and sisters, when we are confronted with death, then we are facing the bitter 
consequences of sin and its horrible stench. Remember how the Lord God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that they would surely die if they rebelled against Him by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Death is rightly called our enemy, therefore. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. Yes, death is an enemy to be feared. A great power before which human beings rightly tremble because it is the horrible, ugly consequence of sin. Remember what we confessed back in Lord's Day 4 of the Catechism. That God is terribly displeased with our original and actual sins and that according to the Word that He has spoken to us, He will punish them with a just judgment both now and eternally. And you know what that punishment is? That punishment is death. There in Lord's Day 4, we confessed that God's justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. The most severe punishment. Death. Eternal death. That brothers and sisters, is what we deserve. In the world, death is often downplayed or minimized or made the subject of light banter and humor. It is viewed as something that is natural, even though it may be painful. Countless books have been written about death and dying and about how to face death and and how to cope with it. But many evade the real issue when it comes to death. For there is nothing natural about death at all. Death is God's judgment upon the human race. The scriptural reality comes to the fore again in Lord's Day 16. The question is asked in question and answer 40, why was it necessary for Christ to humble Himself even unto death? And the answer is, because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. That is why our Lord Jesus Christ was so filled with bitter grief when He had to face His death on the cross. What Jesus was doing was making satisfaction for our sins. By His death, the Savior was enduring the most severe punishment of God against our sin. That is why our Lord Jesus was so filled with terror of death. 
so filled with terror, in fact, that he cried out to his father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Even our Lord Jesus was terrified by death. What he said there in that prayer on the Mount of Olives was not an expression of his unwillingness to submit to his Father's will and to go to the cross for us. For you remember what he immediately said after that, yet not my will, but your will be done. But what our Savior did express when He cried out to His Father was His sheer terror and consternation at the prospect of experiencing the most brutal punishment of His Father against our sin. Death. Well, brothers and sisters, the glorious reality is that Christ has made satisfaction for our sin. He has endured the most severe punishment of God. The punishment that we deserve to receive. And He did so actively. Notice how question 40 is phrased. And it's phrased that way for a reason. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble Himself even unto death? You see, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He humbled Himself unto death as an action. Death was not the Lord Jesus' fate. It was His mission. Jesus did not come to earth like a soldier goes to war, willing to risk His life. Rather, Jesus came as a mediator to give His life for us unto death. To pour out His soul unto death. As it says in Isaiah 53. And as Paul says in Philippians 2, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you remember those beautiful words of our Savior in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross just because He had to. Jesus died on the cross because He wanted to. He did so because He wanted to give us life through His death. That was His mission. As described in Romans 8, His mission was this, to destroy sin in sinful man through His death, as Paul says there. Christ's death was His mission. And because His mission is accomplished, all the righteous requirements of God's law, which we would have never met, have been fully met in us. In other words, through Christ's death, He has fulfilled God's law for us. The law which previously condemned us and killed us. 
And that is the reason, brothers and sisters, that we no longer have to fear death. Are you sometimes afraid of death? It is a scary prospect, isn't it? But listen then to the good news of the Gospel. Yes, we do still have to die. We, we won't deny that. Yes, even forgiven sinners will still have to die. And redeemed saints are still laid in the grave. That's not the end of the story. The Catechism doesn't want us to evade the reality of death. Therefore, it asks in question and answer 42, since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Because that's a question that still looms. If Christ died for us, why do we still have to die? Then look at that beautiful answer. In question and answer 42. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? The judgment of death is turned into a blessing. On account of the death of Christ, the grief of death is transformed into joy on account of the death of our Savior. When we die, in other words, sin is finished and eternal life begins. That's the good message. That's the good news for us about death. When we die, then our sin is over for us. We trust in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, listen to the words of your Savior who died in your place. This is what He says in John 5, verse 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. That is the good news about death for you and me and all who believe. We have crossed over from death to life with Jesus. Believe this promise of your Lord Jesus Christ. For if you do that, then you need not have any doubt that your death isn't the end. Rather, it's the entrance into eternal life. Our death is not loss for us, but gain. It's not worse. It's better. As those who have been redeemed from the punishment of death through Christ's death, we may say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The 
Did the criminal on the cross have anything to fear when he died? From a human perspective, he had a lot to fear. Having to face the living God after a life of criminal activity. But from the perspective of the Gospel, he had nothing to fear at all. He had something to look forward to. Remember what Jesus said to him as he hung there with Jesus on the cross. Jesus said to that criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. Did Simeon need to dread the moment of his death? You remember the the old man Simeon who held the baby Jesus after his birth? Did Simeon need to fear death? Not at all. And that's why he could say with full confidence in the promises of God, Sovereign Lord, as You have promised, You now dismiss Your servant in peace. In peace, Simeon could look forward to his death. For my eyes have seen Your salvation, Simeon said. Simeon could die in peace. And so can all who believe in Jesus Christ. And that's why we don't need to fear either. In Revelation 14, verse 13, we hear the voice from heaven declaring, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. People who don't know the Gospel, will find that a strange thing. Blessed are the dead. Sometimes even we find that a strange thought. Death is ugly. Who wants it? Who needs it? Brothers and sisters, it is true. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Indeed, each one of us may now say, the Lord Jesus has laid His claim on me. Jesus Christ has laid His claim on my death too. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong to Him in body and soul, both in life and death. Christ has died to remove from me the sting of death and Christ was buried to free me from the power of the grave. Question and answer 41 seems at first glance to play a minor role in Lord's Day 16 and in the Apostles' Creed as a whole. It's short, both in the Apostles' Creed and and in the Catechism. That's why we we may ask the question, is it really significant that Jesus Christ was buried? Isn't it enough for us to know that, that Jesus died for us? After all, we know from John 19 that after His death, when the soldiers came to break Jesus' legs in order to speed up His death, they found that He was already dead. 
The soldiers confirmed this by piercing his side, bringing a, a sudden flow of blood and water. Isn't it redundant for the catechism to state that his burial testified that he had really died? While we shouldn't underestimate the importance of Christ's burial as a testimony that he had really died. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 3 and 4. There, the Apostle Paul writes, For what I received from the Lord, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So among the the first things, among the things that are of first importance, Paul mentions Christ's burial. Why does Paul call Christ's burial a matter of first importance? Well, Christ's burial was actually a powerful proclamation. It was a a testimony that carried great weight. We might even say it this way. Our Lord Jesus Christ not only preached when He was alive on the earth, Even when He was dead and buried, the gospel of life sounded forth from His grave. Even when He was in the ground, the gospel sounded forth from our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's see that from the Scriptures. Remember what we read in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus was preaching the good news, but the Pharisees, as always, didn't believe Him. They resisted everything He said. On this occasion, their resistance came in the form of a challenge. They said to Jesus, as we read in Matthew 12, verse 38, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from You. Show us a sign. And then look at how Jesus answered. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the ground. In the grave. You see, even Christ's burial was his act. It was a miraculous sign, as he said to the Pharisees. It was a sign that Jesus planned to perform ahead of time, and through it, planned to testify who he was. Even from the grave, Jesus preached the gospel of life. He testified that He really was the Christ. That He really is the Savior. 
And what a powerful sign He performed. And what a mighty sermon He preached from the grave. Matthew describes to us later in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27, the verses 57 and following, there Matthew describes how Joseph of Arimathea took Christ's body and placed it in his own new tomb which he had cut out of the rock. There we're told in Matthew 27 that Joseph rolled a large stone in front of the entrance of the tomb. He shut Jesus' grave. Not only that, Pilate had also commanded that a guard be placed at his grave. That's what we read in verse 65 of Matthew 27. Take a guard, Pilate answered, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. You know what Pilate was really saying there? He was really saying, I don't care how much it costs. Just make sure that that tomb of Jesus is impossible for anyone to break through. It's not surprising that the Apostle should say to us that it is of first importance for us to know that Christ was buried. For through Christ's burial, we see all the more powerfully His victory over death. His burial was an undeniable testimony that He really had died. No one could deny that. Not only was He buried in a tomb, but his tomb was securely sealed. Something to which the Scriptures clearly testify. And yet, this securely locked tomb was victoriously thrust open by our Savior three days later. Pilate could seal it as much as he wanted, but Jesus got out. Indeed, Jesus had to be buried according to His own prophecy so that on the third day He could powerfully and compellingly testify to a greater fact. Not only had He died, not only had He died for His people, He had also overcome death. His closed grave testified that He really died. And the open grave testified that He had overcome death. He had destroyed death. He had conquered death. The securely sealed tomb testified that it was impossible for Him not to have died. But the open tomb on Easter Sunday testified that it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Him. She used the words of Acts 2. Brothers and sisters, death always seems so final, doesn't it? Especially when we're not expecting it. Especially when the death is tragic, sudden. Death seems so final, 
especially when the casket is lowered and covered by the earth. What a symbol of the reality of the power of death and the tenacious grip of the grave that none of us has the power to loosen, no matter how hard we try. And yet, brothers and sisters, the graves of those who die in the Lord are locked only as tightly as Jesus' grave was. One day they too will burst open and free from their grip all our loved ones who have died in the Lord. Friends, parents, spouses, children, loved ones. And if we too are laid in the grave before the return of Christ, then our tombs too will burst open at His return. Then we too, and all our loved ones who have died, will break out of our tombs. We don't have to wait until the return of our Lord, though, to experience the reality of Christ's crucifixion, death, and burial. For as we confess in question and answer 43, through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with Him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to Him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. What a promise. What a reality that is. Sin once reigned in us. Sin once had its sting for us. It was like a tyrant whose power could not be broken. The only reward it offered was eternal death. But we know, we who know the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that our old self is crucified with Christ so that the body of sin which had dominion over us has been done away with. Since our old nature has been crucified with Christ, He calls us daily to take up our cross by crucifying our old nature and to follow Him. The psalmist in Psalm 116, after rejoicing that the Lord has delivered his soul from death, confesses, O Lord, truly I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. We are freed from slavery to sin and death so that we may become thankful servants of Christ. Christ died for us. Now, already now, we may live for Him. How else could we live for such a Redeemer? What greater thanks could we render to Him for such a great redemption? Christ died to remove from me the sting of death. Christ was buried to free me from the power of the grave. And Christ descended into hell to deliver me from its torment. What about the last article that we deal with in Lord's Day 16? 
Why is there added, He descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by His unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which He endured throughout all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. So what about that last article? He descended into hell. It was believed in the early church when the Apostles' Creed was written that Christ descended into hell after He died. But that's not how the Catechism sees it. We confess here in the Catechism that Christ suffered the unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony of hell throughout all His sufferings. Especially at the end. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that Jesus Christ descended into hell after His burial. Remember, Jesus had said to the repentant criminal on the cross that He would be with Him in paradise that day. The church of the Reformation, although it came to this proper interpretation of Christ's hellish agony, wanted to maintain its link with the early church by leaving the order of the creed untampered. At the same time, the church of the Reformation continues to unite with the early church in her confession of the comfort of Christ's hellish agony. In the most overwhelming of our sorrows and temptations, the sorrows and temptations which tug at our hearts and chip away at our lives, we may remember the cross where our Savior, during the time that He was on earth, offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears and was heard. Remember the cross on which our Savior was crucified where for three long hours He was totally abandoned by His Father, where He cried out with a loud voice, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? We're told in Hebrews 5 that He was heard by His Father because of His reverent submission. God's Son, our Lord and Savior, was heard because He completed that awesome task of freeing us from our sins. His victory over death, hell, and the grave is the balm for our every woe and means the banishment of every fear. These words from the fourth article of the Apostles' Creed then put a totally different spin on death, don't they? Yes, death is ugly. We don't need it. We don't want it. But for us who know Jesus Christ, we also have the comfort, not only in life, but also in death, that we belong to Him.
And therefore, to use the words of Psalm 116, each one of us may say, each one of us, whatever we think of death, may say, be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org. Dot org.